welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. I'm going to read two passages, 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be revisiting a, a portion of the text from last week today, 1 John 2, 1, and then we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, which is a great spotlight on the call of this text to, to live for the Lord. So will you hear with me God's word? John wrote, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's life-touching word. May we hear from him in power today. Pray with me. Father, We come and ask that uh, some of the the great promises of the New Testament about how to live for you and how to defeat sin in our lives are about to be unfolded. Lord, principles that are misunderstood by some, but oh, when they are placed into practice in the life of the believer, over time, Christ-likeness happens Strength and victory over sin happens. Deep abiding joy happens. And the world sees Christ in us. So I pray, Father, that you would be over the teaching of the word as we touch on the the teaching of the spirit-filled life as it relates to John's words. Father, come and strengthen me. There's nothing special about me, but I'm the one standing here with the calling and the responsibility to open your word. I ask for physical strengthening this morning. I ask for mental and uh, emotional and intellectual freedom and strength. But more than anything, Lord, I ask that, as I always do when I come to this pulpit, that you would clothe whoever stands in it with the Holy Spirit, that you would teach us from the greatness of your word and show us the beauty of Jesus in his marvelous name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for joining in prayer. There was a uh, older Bible teacher, I should say, who was an expositor, a man that uh, went deep into the truths of the word and opened it verse by verse to his people for many years. And uh, he mentored many young men And there was one young uh, aspiring preacher who just entered Bible college that was spending time uh, with the pastor. They were sitting in the pastor's study one afternoon, and the pastor was answering random questions about 
spiritual leadership, but the young man was entranced with preaching. And so he asked him questions about how he comes to the text and how he uh, digs into the depths of it to find out what God really meant when he said it, what he put the words there for, and how do you structure that and how do you bring it forth? And, and uh, at one point he did what I've done in the past with one or two great preachers that I had the presence, the opportunity to be in the presence of privately. And that was, he said, pastor, can I see your preaching notes? And the old pastor said, well, certainly, come on over to this side of the desk. And he opened up the notes from last week's message, which were still tucked into his preaching Bible. And the young man was just in awe and entranced with that. And, and he flipped through the pages and took a look at the outline and, and the, the, the notes that the pastor used to remind himself about all that he wanted to pour into his people. But he couldn't help noticing that every few points, every, every so often when the pastor had made a point from the text, there were three letters, Y-B-H, and then a question mark. And they were circled at the right margin. Point after point from the passage, Y-B-H, question mark, circled. It was a mystery to the young man, so he said, but pastor, I understand the notes and I can see the beauty of the sermon, but... What does YBH mean? And he looked at the young man. He says, that's a reminder to me that at about that point where I tell the people what the word of God says to do, a lot of them are going to be asking me in their own minds, yeah, but how? <laughs> I read that story years ago. And uh, if you were able to get into my study and look at some of my notes, occasionally you're going to see YBH in the margin. And right beside it, you'll see the capital letter A with a square around it, and that's application. That's the how-to. That's the best I can bring to help people understand how to take the greatness of God's commands and live them out in the fabric of our life. And so uh, this is going to be a YBH message, because as I went through 1 John with you, and we got to the great passage in chapter 2, verse 1, it really is the, the summary of a whole section, like I told you, from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through chapter 2, verse, verse 2, of how to handle sin in your life as a believer. How not to deceive yourself about it, how not to rationalize it, how not to deny it, but also how to overcome it. And we, we closed this last week with John's great call in chapter 2, verse 1. He was writing to Christians saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And I taught you how astounding a teaching that is to a lot of Christians today who've never really been taught that you can have a level of victory and obedience in your life as a Christian that you never tasted before you met Christ. You can begin to defeat sin in your life. In fact, you're supposed to. You're to be on a trajectory of growing obedience in your Christian life. As you know him more and his word abides in you more, you're able to say no to sin and yes to Christ more and more and more. And so John's vision was that they would grow in that. 
But when you get to a text like that, I was thinking about the fact that in our Christian society, that's a yes, but how moment, because there's so many places of battle in the sincere Christian's life. As they grow in Christ, they become more aware of their sin. And as they are opposed by the enemy, they have more battles with sin and temptation. And so I thought I would pause before we go further into the next section of 1 John and answer some of the yes, but how questions. Now, the best way I could think of to do that was to talk about a doctrine, a practical theology is what it's called, the doctrine of what it means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Because that is an understanding that when it comes into your life as a Christian, is a place into which you can put a lot of yes, but how questions all the challenges of God's word to, that call you to deeper obedience are empowered if you understand how to live what's known as the spirit-filled or the spirit-controlled life. And so this will be a topical message where we're going to touch on two major texts, but we're going to go through a lot of God's word to talk about what the Bible teaches us about how to come under the control of the Holy Spirit so that he empowers you from within so that you can say no to sin. So you can fulfill 1 John 2, 1, that you may not sin. Not talking about perfection, but we are talking about progression in obedience to Jesus. Don't you want to be like that as a Christian? Don't you want the greatness of his pleasure over the growing Christ-likeness in your life. If you are a believer, you do want it. And I want to talk a bit about how the Holy Spirit has been given to you to help that happen. The Spirit-filled life. Now, when I begin to talk about it, these just some comments of introduction, and then three uh, great truths about the Spirit and the Christian. That's the message today. When I begin to talk about the spirit-filled life and spirit-filled people, um, some things may come to your mind that uh, are part of our Christian experience, but they're not fully what I'm getting at. And also, to be honest, ever since the Spirit fell on Pentecost, the church has at times been given to excesses or deceptions about what it means to see the presence of the Spirit or the work of the Spirit, and that's going on today as it has in the past. So let me begin with just a visual question. What comes to your mind if I ask you to imagine someone filled with the Holy Spirit? What do they look like? Now you might, uh, depending on your background, and visualize immediate in your, immediately in your mind somebody who's involved in an emotional moment of worship. An emotional moment of worship or some kind of emotional encounter with God might involve a physical experience, and it certainly involves an emotional one, and that could have all kinds of images based on your background. Some of you have been in very extreme services where it could have some extreme physical images, I don't know. But sometimes you might imagine somebody in an emotional worship service. Is that a person filled with the Spirit? Other times you might think of an unusually godly person that you know and admire and have been around, and they're a person of deep personal prayer. And when you're around them, there's a sense of who they are, and they have a demeanor about them and a mindset about them and a mood about them that's unique, and you, 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 you wish you could have that, but they're very unusually 
devoted people and you think, well, that unusually godly person, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's for them. It's for the exception. It's for the unusual Christian, the devoted believer, but it's probably not for you. Or it's something that happens in rare moments of prayer encounter with God or some kind of spiritual moment. Maybe you go to Acts chapter 2 and, and think that, that the filling of the Spirit only comes in unusual God events that he orchestrates or that the church has to gather to seek. Was that the life of the early church? Is a Spirit-filled experience something that's that unique? Or maybe you think about John the Baptist. Now, the Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from when he was within his mother's womb. And John came out, it seems, a preaching. And, and uh, he was filled with fiery challenges and power over against a sinful generation. Is that what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you have to have a unique ministry gifting? And we say, oh, he was, he was filled with the Holy Spirit in his ministry. Is that the only thing we're talking about? Well... Let me give you a couple other images of, of being filled with the Holy Spirit that you may not have immediately thought of. Here's one. Here's someone the Bible says should have come to your mind when you think of someone filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you ready? Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> now you think, well, wait a minute, of course, theologically he's perfect and he was perfect. But no, the Bible actually goes out of its way to remind us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He is fully God, fully man, God on the planet, God in a bod, as they used to say in the 70s generation when I got saved. I laughed then. So I think it's a little sacrilegious, but that's what Kenny Poor, that camp speaker, when I first got saved, first time I ever heard that, God in a bod. But, but of course Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, but, but Luke goes out of his way to say that when Jesus began his public ministry in Luke chapter 4, it says he, when he, he was full of the Holy Spirit and he went out and was led into the wilderness to battle the devil. You remember that in Luke 4 as he began his ministry? And as he returned, Luke 4.14 says he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. And those same words, filled and with power, are used later in the New Testament to talk about what can happen to to you as an everyday Christian. So Jesus is an example of a human being who was divinely indwelt so that God's life and power could move through him. That's important. Jesus demonstrated a divine design. He was fully human. He allowed himself to come under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and everything he did was through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he lived as a, as a human illustration of what would later be true for you, because the Bible says when you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you. The same Spirit that drove Jesus out into the wilderness and carried him all the way through the cross work and, and all, of, all of his spiritual battle, the same Spirit strengthening him in, in his Gethsemane will later be present to strengthen you in your Gethsemane. So that's an important image. Jesus demonstrated the divine design. The divine life lived under human conditions, as one author put it. So you ought to be thinking about Jesus of Nazareth, who was not given to extremes, who was not someone who you would be a little questioning in some spiritual ec ecstasy or whatever. Jesus Christ was the most balanced human being who ever walked the planet. We want to be like him. And he's an example of someone under the control filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's somebody else. The second person would be any Christian, including you. 
You can be an example of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I know this because that passage I read to you from Ephesians 5 says, do not be foolish, understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. It's the same word filled as Luke talks about happened to Jesus, and that's for every Christian. So can, can you imagine what a person look, looks like who, who's filled with the Spirit now? It's you when you're under the will of God, when you're responding to the Word and by faith, by, by faith and an act of the will, you're obeying Jesus. You're under His control. Now we're going to see the word filled in a few moments is different than our emotionally driven society believes it is in terms of what it really means. So Think about some of your misconceptions, put them to the side here, and let's just go now through three great biblical truths about the Holy Spirit and you that I think as you learn about them may help you understand how you too can come under the control of the Spirit. Here's the first great truth. It's this. Number one, all Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're new to Christianity, this is going to be an eye-opening truth for you. Or if you come from a certain set of religious traditions that says that only special people are indwelt by the Spirit, or only Christian leaders are indwelt by the Spirit, oh no, it's the property of every single believer. In fact, it's what makes you a believer. It's what brought you to, to, to faith. All Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, why do you have to know that? In order to be filled by the Holy Spirit and controlled by him, you have to know him. And you do if you're a Christian. Now, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit was going to come after he ascended to heaven, and the Holy Spirit would come from the throne room of God, and he would come to not only be with believers, just like Jesus had been with the disciples for three years, but in them. John 14, 15. You won't see it on the screen, but just listen as I read it. Jesus, on the night he was leaving his disciples, said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. In my Bible, that's capitalized because it refers to the Holy Spirit. Another comforter, parakletos, one who will come alongside to be with you forever. The word another there is alas in the Greek. It meant another exactly like Jesus. In other words, God the Son was leaving to go to heaven. God the Spirit was coming to take his place in your life to be everything that Jesus was to them, to you. He says he is even the spirit of truth, verse 17. My Bible has spirit capitalized because the, the translators know he's talking about the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Now, how was the Holy Spirit dwelling with the believers then? In the person of Jesus Christ, everything Jesus did, he said, I do by the power of the Spirit. So for three years, they had seen the Spirit, heard the Spirit, watched the Spirit. They didn't quite understand the Trinity. That would come later, but they began to see the Spirit in action in the life of Jesus because he was the divine design. The, the divine lived out in a human life. But then he said, when I leave, the Spirit will be in you. So Jesus made a promise that those who come to believe him will, will actually be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, did God keep the promise? 
Yes, 1 Corinthians 2.12. Paul says, now we, Christians, all of us, all believers, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, my Bible has a capital X, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That's an interesting passage. It talks about the fact that when you become a Christian, the Spirit of God comes to dwell within you, and something happens in terms of your ability to understand biblical truth. Maybe this happened for you. Sometimes it's more gradual, but uh, there is a when the Spirit of God comes to dwell in you who you are, you're regenerated, you're born again, you're given, the Bible says, a new nature, and you also get a new mind. I know some of you wives might be amazed that's true of your Christian husbands, but it is. They're a little slower on the IQ scale, but no, we're given a new mind. What does that mean? Previously, the Bible says you were in the darkness of sin. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that the natural man is unable to understand the things of God. He's unable to make any sense out of the word of God or the gospel itself. But when the spirit comes, oh, that changes. And when the spirit is from God comes, notice we understand the things freely given us by God. I was with a dear friend, one of my oldest friends, who's a mentor of mine. And I stay close to my mentors, even at my point in life. There are a few men before whom I'm an open book and who I draw from spiritually deeply. And I had a chance to have lunch with him this past week. And I got even more of a chance to hear his testimony and uh, how he, uh, well, he had been a very, very devoted Catholic. And he had uh, known only that teaching. He went away to, to seminary to be tested for the potential of the priesthood. He lasted in seminary a year, and when he left Catholic seminary, he had entirely lost his faith. He'd abandoned the Catholic faith as he'd gone to different aspects of it that troubled him and, and disappointed him and confused him. And in fact, along the way, he'd lost his faith in God, or so he thought. But when he left that discouraging experience and became a functional atheist and went, went to Eastern here and, and started to get involved in the college life and build a totally secular life, uh, the Spirit of God was on the move and would not let him go. And the implications of what he is abandoning him began to really strike home. And he began to think deeply about what it means to say, you no longer believe in God. And and uh, he didn't know it at the time. Now we both know it, that he was under the power of the Spirit of God then, who was convicting him of sin and righteousness and judgment, and who was busy drawing him to Christ. And uh, through an encounter with an individual who opened to him the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, not by works, not by ritual, but simply by the mighty work of Jesus on his behalf, one night he came to Christ at this man's home who was a next-door neighbor who had invited him over for a Bible study. And he came home that night, and the next morning he woke up, and he had been trying to read the Bible on and off for months. Since he'd abandoned his faith, he was trying to, to rescue himself. But he, to he told me this week, every time I read the Bible... It was absolute nonsense. I couldn't connect one part of it to the other. But that next morning, 
I opened that Bible and it was like somebody had turned on a million watt searchlight. Boom! And that Bible almost shined in my hands. And all of a sudden, every word I read in it came alive and made sense. And then when I read different parts of it, he just started reading voraciously. He said, I saw this part reveal this part, and that part confirmed the other part. And I concluded this all must have been written by the same person. And of course, we know that to be the doctrine of inspiration, that, oh, yes, it is written by the same person. Forty-some authors over, over thousands of years, but it's all written, all 66 books by one person, the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says when the author comes to reside in who you are, it's suddenly amazing how well you understand his book. So the, the Spirit comes. Now, how, did the, how does the Spirit come into your life when you become a Christian. There are two ways, and this is the two sub-points sub under the first understanding you have to have, and is that all Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, a true Christian, two things have, have become true of you. Number one, you experienced a new birth. This is in John chapter 3. Nicodemus had come by night. Nicodemus, a Jewish leader at the time, came by night and asked Jesus how he could be sure he could see the kingdom of God. And Jesus answered in John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So a person cannot come to know God in a personal way unless they are born again born of water and the Spirit. Now, what is that all about? Water there, according to the, the, to the scriptures in the book of Ephesians and other places, is a symbol of the gospel or the water of the word being poured out on a life. So when the word of God comes, it's like God bringing the water of salvation over your life. But notice who has to be there for that word of God to have power, the spirit. My Bible has that capital S. There is a miracle that happens when the gospel comes over your life. The spirit of God works within you and he works out your salvation. The spirit, the Bible says, regenerates you. He brings new life into a spiritually dark person. How does that happen? Through the miraculous work of the Spirit as he uses the truth. What does the truth do over your life when you're in that moment of regeneration? Well, Jesus said in another part of John, the Spirit is going to come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit of God will come over your life and he will awaken you spiritually to understand that you're a sinner you face God's righteousness, you face God's judgment, but that Jesus came to be your righteousness. And that whole message suddenly makes sense to you. And you see your sin, as I often say, and you seek your Savior. It's that moment of awareness that comes under the Spirit's power. He convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the desire arises in your heart to turn to Christ. So Jesus said that spiritual revolution has to happen in a, a person before they can be called a Christian. You may say, well, I, but I'm a Christian because um, I was Baptist before I was a baby. I mean, I, 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 I don't know a Sunday where I wasn't either in a car seat sitting in church or now I'm in a big seat sitting in church. I, I understand. I, I speak Christian. 
I was dipped in, 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 in the right time and all of that. No, no, none of that stuff matters. Just like my friend grew up in Catholicism for 20 years and it didn't matter for him. It's not ceremony, it's new life. So the Holy Spirit creates the new birth. He saves you. He's the author of it all. He superintends it all. You're regenerated. You're convicted. And new life comes to dwell within you. And you become a new person beginning from the inside out. Has that happened to you? Now, people say, are you talking about a dramatic experience? No, I'm talking about beginning to understand the gospel and understanding that over time you realize you are a a person who now understands spiritual truth and you love Jesus and you love his word. You understand his word and you want to live to please him. Sometimes that takes place gradually. For others like me, as you know my testimony, it took place on a midnight and there was a pretty dramatic transformation in my God-hating life into a a Christ-loving life. But it's not always that way, but it is always evident. You know new life when you see it. Has that happened for you? Now, he doesn't come just to give you a momentary experience when he comes to save and he came to stay. This is important. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and go. Once he comes to you, you possess him. He comes to stay. Jesus said he shall abide in you. He will be with you permanently. Once you come to know the Lord and the Spirit of God comes to dwell in who you are, you will never lose him because he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a wonderful, wonderful assurance. And he's there not just to comfort you and to assure you of your salvation. He's there to give you the power to now live out your salvation. I think somebody quoted it earlier where, where he has come both to will and to work for your salvation. He's now within you. The divine is within you to live out the divine life through you. You have the power, in other words, to begin to live like Jesus and please Jesus. That's awesome. He came not just to save He came to stay and empower you. Now, I'm talking about a difference between what you might have been told about Christianity. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship where you you come into a relationship with a living being, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he comes into your life and the person of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes to make Jesus real to you. You have a real relationship. I'm not talking about religion. My friend left religion and he found a relationship. But I'm not talking here about consecration either. When you become a believer, you don't now have to to drum up the will to to please him and then you don't have to enter into this whole religious life where you better keep doing good or your relationship with God might be in jeopardy. We're not talking about consecration. We're talking about transformation where you suddenly receive a new nature and you want to please him. And with that new nature comes a new dynamic. Remember Luke said Jesus was filled with power. Dunamis. We get our word dynamic from it. It's the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. Isn't that powerful? And the Bible says when the Holy Spirit comes and abides in you, you now have the ability to say no to sin and yes to Christ. You have a dynamic now within you. That's different than any religion can promise. I'm an experienced father, and I've uh, gone through many, many different Christmases of frustration having raised six kids. Uh, the, the, The night before Christmas, 
when all through the house, nothing heard was heard but dad's groaning as he tried to put the Christmas presents together. You know what I'm saying? Some of you know. And don't you love it when you spend the time to go find the, the, the gift that you know your child wants and it's got some mechanical aspects to it and you put it together and it's along about 1.30 in the morning and you get right to the end and it, you got everything where it's supposed to go and you're getting ready to turn it on and then you look down at the bottom of the page of the instructions and it says, battery not included. Where are you going at two in the morning to find? And of course, it's some exotic Taiwanese solenoid battery, you know. Don't you hate that? Christianity is not going to be like that for you. Religion is just that way. Religion gives you this elaborate set of instructions that confuse you and intimidate you. And even when you get the instructions in the right order and you want to get after it, you suddenly discover the battery's not included. You don't have the ability to do what religion asks you to do. No, this is a relationship where the one who wants you to do it comes to live within you to empower you to do it. So with Christianity, hear me, the battery is included. <laughs> who is the battery? The Holy Spirit. God in within you, designed to empower you so that he himself can fulfill his own commands. It's a miracle. You say, I don't understand it. No, I don't either. But I trust it moment by moment. So you need a new birth to be called a Christian. Who does the new birthing? The Lord Jesus Christ. A new nature, a new power. But then there's also a new presence He's there not only to empower you to, to obey him, but to give you the fruit of the Spirit, to give you a, a, an experience of life that is powerful and fresh and beautiful. John chapter 7, on the last day of the Feast of, the, of, of Booths in Jerusalem, in the last year of his life, Feast of the Booths was a huge feast in Jerusalem where everybody got together and they, they would celebrate God's blessing on the harvest and pray for it. And on the last day of the feast, they would take these big pitchers of water out from the pool down there. I think it's Hezekiah's pool. March them all the way up in a grand procession. And the priests would throw all of this water from these silver pitchers at the foot of the altar as a way of saying, God, we pray that you'll pour out water on the crops and bless our season. Well, Jesus was standing there in the temple when they were throwing all of these pitchers of water against the foot of the altar, and the water was just sitting there in a still pool at the bottom. And precisely at that moment, scholars believe, John 7, 37 happened. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. My Bible's got a capital S there too. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus was making a promise. All these people in their religion throwing water that just came down into a still pool at the base of an altar. They were worried about water for the crops. Jesus said, hey man, you've got a bigger problem. Those are dry fields. You have a dry soul. You don't know me. You're dried out and dead in your sin. But if you trust me, the Spirit of God will sweep into who you are and he will bring a sense of new life in you that flows over. Living water was water that had no end. Living water is water going in a stream with a huge source. It never stops moving. It's not just placid like a pool at the bottom of the altar. It's moving constantly. It's deep. It's fresh. It's, it's, it's rich. It's cold. It's rejuvenating. It's cleansing. It's moving and active. And Jesus 
said, if you come to know me, the Spirit of God's going to come into your heart, and you're going to have a dynamic spiritual experience of life with me. Not religion, relationship. Living and moving and active. And I'll tell you what, if you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know something of what I'm talking about. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's that, that knowledge of, of, a, of a very special relationship with Jesus. Jesus said all you have to do is thirst for a solution to your sin and believe in a Savior from sin. The gospel is right there in John 7. Thirst and believe. So let me ask you as we end this first point, have you done that? You say, I want the Holy Spirit. I want this this relationship. Well, it begins by coming to Jesus. Thirsting for a solution for your sin and believing in the risen Jesus and inviting him into your life. If you've done that, then he's within you. If you haven't done it, do it, and he'll come within you. But not only does he want to indwell you, he wants to fill you. Now that's getting to the second point. You say, okay, I think I'm beginning to understand some of this. I sure want him to have control of my life. Well, here's the second big point. Unfortunately, not all Christians are filled by the Holy Spirit. All Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but not not all Christians are filled by the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again. All Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. It's how you become a Christian. He puts you into the body of Christ and he comes to dwell within you. But not all Christians are filled. And here's where we get to the question of filled and what does that mean? Now, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about the fact that Christians are either fleshly or spiritual. Let me explain this a little bit. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is writing to a pretty messed up group of Christians, right? If you're church hunting, don't don't spend much time at the first church of Corinth. Keep, keep driving. It's really not worth hanging around. It was a messed up little place. Lots of sin, lots of carnality, lots of conflict, lots of ugliness, lots of hurt, lots of deception, lots of false teaching, lots of corrupt leaders. On and on and on it went. But Paul writes to them as believers. Doesn't, he doesn't kind of, you know, totally write them off. He writes to them. And in 1 Corinthians 3.1, he puts his finger on the problem. Their problem wasn't, was doc, wasn't an issues of doctrine or, or, or poor leadership or, or conflict management. They didn't need to go on a seminar about how to reorganize their church. He says the problem in the body of who you are is because of the problem in the character of who you are as individuals. But I, brothers, so they're Christians, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. There you see the two types of Christians that there are. There are spiritual Christians, spirit-filled, under under the control and lordship of Christ. And then there are fleshly Christians. But notice, they're all brothers. This is significant. He's writing to the whole church. What would it be like to be in a church where the vast majority of the people in in that church, as Christians, are out of the will of God? are in rebellion against the Lord and are living out their old sin nature's desires instead of the new nature. They're living like the people they used to be rather than the people they ought to be. And that's not just one or two 
in some kind of bad Bible study. That's pretty much the whole group. That's why I'm telling you, keep driving past the church at Corinth. But Paul is their shepherd. He's responsible for them, and so he writes to correct them, and he gets to the heart of the problem. He says, your church is messed up because you guys are not individually filled with the Holy Spirit. You're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can be fleshly. Let's take a look at that one. That's the, sec- that's the first of the two understandings under what it means that, for the, that, that not all Christians are filled by the Holy Spirit. Christians sometimes are fleshly. He says, you are people of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Notice he connects that as inf- to infants in Christ. They're in Christ. But they came to faith and they only went a little bit further. They know what it means to have saving faith. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They do understand the assurance of salvation. They did turn from from hell to heaven, but they've never gone further in any growth. They stayed infants. What's an infant? Immature. Therefore, he said, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only in human ways? In other words, all the problems in your church come from problems in your hearts. You're infants. You came to faith, but only a little bit further. And, you know, this, this is a constant problem. All of us have been here at times. It's not good when a whole church gets there most of the time. And there are many, and I have been in a few. Ministering there or attending. You see, the flesh sticks with you after you're a believer. Yes, the Spirit of God comes into you, but until you get translated and and taken to heaven, the flesh, that old sin nature that drove your life until you met Jesus, it's still there. You have a new nature now that wants to obey Jesus. In fact, I think that's the realer part of you now. But the flesh, Paul says, is still part of your existence. It's part of your being. And the flesh is that drive to disobey God, to be the Lord of your life, to live out all your fallen human desires. It's man's fallen humanness. Some call it your Adamic self. It's not eradicated when you're saved, unfortunately, It can't dominate or destroy you anymore, but it sure can greatly influence you. So Christians can get into situations where they become characterized by by, by responding to that. So you're not characterized by sin. It's not your true nature, but you you are still able to sin is what I should have said. And by the way, sin in a Christian is just as sinful as sin in the life of an unbeliever. In case you're wondering, we rationalize. We talked about that two weeks ago. It's sin is sin. So Christians can fall back into temptation. They can, they can fall back into the, the practices of the flesh or through poor teaching, never be taught how to get out of it, never be taught how to build the disciplines of holiness that we talked about. And that's a tragedy. How do you know that you might be living in the flesh? It's when you start looking a lot like the person you were and the world you left in sectors of your life or in the entire dominant attitude of your life. But I'm going to tell you right now, God's not going to let that rest in the life of a Christian. And this is a, this is a, a precious pain right here. A.W. Tozer once said, the Holy Spirit never enters a person and, and lets them live like the world. You can be sure of that. 
He not, in other words, he's going to take action in that. And we know from the book of Hebrews that God will do two things. One is he will allow chastening to come into your life. Chastening from a loving father toward his children. Chastening is discipline. It's consequences. It's pain. Why? To, to push you away from that path of sin that you've gone back into and, and chasten you into the path of holiness. And the Bible says he does it out of love for our own good. Every believer, the Lord says, if you're not chastened, you're not his. So we experience that. The second thing he does is he allows the failure and the pain of sin to trouble you. Sin has horrible fruit. I don't care how much you desired it. It bears horrible dark fruit. And thank God, thank God every crop of sin is thorny because it disciplines you in itself and you begin to come back to the Lord. But many Christians are fleshly. Now contrast that with the fact that the Bible says you ought to be spiritual. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. The Bible says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. All Christians are going to be pulled by the Holy Spirit out of sin paths and into walking according to what the Spirit wants. God is committed to do that for you. I'll put it another way. When you become a Christian, you enter into warfare. Not just spiritual warfare with an enemy that wants to exterminate you, but you enter into warfare against your old life. And the Spirit of God is working within you to move you away from those things. And he wants you to walk according to his guidance. So the tension is actually a sign of relation to the Lord. Do you experience that battle? Or is sin just as easy for you now as it was before you knew Christ? I've got some questions for you. You see, people look at Christianity today as just a new way to look at your old life getting some more information that gives you some principles and ideas about how to make life work better. No, that's not it at all. Christianity is not just a new way to look at your old life. It's a new way to live a new life. And, and that happens when you experience that internal revolution. So not all Christians are filled by the Holy Spirit. Many are fleshly, either in parts of their life or in, in certain paths of their life, and the Lord will not allow that to go on. He will chasten and bring you back into, into obedience, however long that takes. Some Christians are spiritual Christians. They're obeying what Paul told the Galatians, walk by the Spirit. That tension is a sign of relation. So let me ask you as we end the second point, we get ready for the last. Which are you right now, honestly? As a Christian, talking to believers, are you more fleshly or are you more spiritual? Are you living by yourself, for yourself in areas of your life or maybe the whole philosophy of your life and you're just mailing it in here? Or are you living by his power for his purposes? I hope your passion is to be the second of the two people. So that creates a question 
How do you become somebody that is more under the control of the spirit and less under the control of the flesh? Glad you asked. That happens to be our last point. We're going to talk about how to be filled with the spirit as I close, how to come under the control of the spirit, according to Galatians five, how to walk by the spirit. Now, I'm going to disappoint you in advance. Nothing I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes is mystical. And some Christians just love the mystical. I know believers that have known Jesus for 20, 30 years, but they're always still looking for the next spiritual secret. The next book, the next internet teacher, the next special church that's finally found it. And they're looking, they go from experience to experience, service to service, worship encounter to whatever, because they're chasing after mysticism and experience. Well, there's nothing in what the Bible teaches about being filled with the Spirit that's mystical. I'm also not going to share with you any spiritual secret. No experience, no mysticism, no spiritual secret. Well, what's it all about then? I would say it's about a principle of giving the control of your life over and the focus of your heart toward him. I'm going to put it in a sentence. It's all about granting God the control of your life and the focus of your heart. I'll repeat it. It's all about granting God the control of your life and the focus of your heart. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, matter by matter. And you do it by understanding what his word wants you to do, and you submit to that by faith. It's all about granting God the control of your life and the focus of your heart. It's interesting when you take a look at the passages that I read you, Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5, and and Luke chapter 4, the word filled comes into play, doesn't it? Now, we need a little perspective on that because we're an emotionally driven generation. We're also kind of got some just very hardened images of what filled means. Most of the time, when you think about filled, you think about maybe an empty glass. You think about taking something, a pitcher of water, and pouring it into that glass until it's filled to the top and it overflows. I'll bet you that's probably what most of you guys thought when I said the word filled. And that's why we think it's tied to an experience. We think it's some kind of mystical moment when the Spirit of God fills the mystical you, and, and there's some overflowing of experience and, and, and feeling and knowledge or power. It's mystical. But, we're, but actually the word filled there can be translated influence. And in Ephesians, I think the best way to look at it, it was used in that time, in the New Testament time, to being filled like a sail was filled with wind. And it came to mean being under the influence. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses a strange way to explain it. He says in Ephesians 5, He says, be filled with the Spirit, verse 18. But look what he says in the phrase just before it. And do not get drunk with wine. Have you ever wondered about how strange that is? 
Why would he take something as noble and beautiful and intimate and personal as being filled with the person of who God is and contrast it to being drunk on wine? I think part of this comparison is when a person gets drunk, they start drinking wine with the intent of letting that wine control aspects of who they are. So after an hour or so, they're starting to say things, do things, think things, break things, whatever. And is the wine doing it? No, the influence of the wine is doing it. But how did it all start? They decided to put themselves under the influence of that toxin is what it really is. Is the wine doing the things in them that that lead them to jail that night? No, it was their decision to come under the influence of a toxic substance in the first place. They decided to yield themselves to the influence of something. In the same way, he's saying, don't decide to yield yourself to the influence of wine like you did in your old, old days, but decide to yield yourself to the influence of the Spirit. Now, how do you do that? two ways. You come under, first of all, his authority. You come under the authority of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? He's God. He speaks to you through his word. His word is almost always, isn't this true, painfully clear? (laughs) Isn't it? It's clear enough And the Spirit of God, the author within you, makes it as clear as it needs to be about what he wants to be true in your life, how he wants to be the Lord of your life, what he wants you to do in your marital situations, what he wants you to do with that bitterness you're battling this morning, what he wants you to do in that financial tension or need, what he wants you to do in that relational problem that keeps cropping up, what he wants you to do as you take a look at all the sorrows and the frightening things that are happening in a terroristic world. How does he want you to deal with your own anxiety? How does You can fill in the blank with anything you're facing today. You have two options. You can go to the flesh dealing with it your old way and let your old fleshly values control you or you can go to God's word find out what he says is true about it and submit to that by faith what what does he want you to do go restore that relationship humble yourself in that way does he want you to trust him in the invisible for that financial need instead of freaking out about it and letting it dominate your emotional life whatever it is he wants you to find out what he says to do in his word and begin to submit to that by faith You're submitting to an authority. You're putting yourself under the truth. The Spirit of God works through truth. He doesn't work through experience necessarily. Sometimes people have experiences with God. I'm not discounting them. I've had experiences with God. I'm not certainly not discounting those. But the majority of my life, every waking moment, is a faith walk. Understanding who he is from his word, what he says in his word, and how to submit to the truth of that. And I put my life under that authority and that influence. And so who's influencing my decisions by faith? The Holy Spirit. Who's influencing my actions by faith? The Holy Spirit. Is is he doing it in some mystical way where I get encounters all the time? No, he does it through truth because he is the spirit of truth, Jesus said. One commentator put it in a, in, in a selection at Roy Zuck from Dallas Seminary. He, he, let me just kind of bring this into his, his strict, hope maybe this will help you. 
Be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5 is God's command and he expects us to obey. So again, there we are. It's obedience, obeying what he says to know and do. The command is plural, so it applies to all Christians. That's interesting. In the Greek, it is. All of you. It's not just for the special believer and not just to a select few. He goes on. The verb is in the present tense. Keep on being filled. That's interesting. Is it, is it hard to walk with the Lord? Yeah. Is there a new challenge every minute? Uh-huh. Are there problems that are going to arrive in your life tonight that you didn't even know were there this morning? Yes. What's your challenge? Respond to that by trusting what he says and who he is and obeying him by faith. You have to reset yourself all the time as a spirit-controlled Christian. Keep on being filled is the Greek. He says, so it is an experience we should enjoy constantly and not just on special occasions. And the verb is passive. We do not fill ourselves, but permit the spirit to fill us. In other words, you're either guiding your life or he is. The verb fill has nothing to do with contents or quality, as though we are empty vessels that need a required amount of spiritual fuel to keep going. In the Bible, listen to this, filled means, quote, controlled by. For example, Luke 4.28, they were filled with wrath when they were chasing Jesus up the hillside. It means they were controlled by wrath, and for that reason tried to kill Jesus. The Jews were filled with envy, and Acts chapter 13 means that the Jews were controlled by envy and opposed the ministry of Paul. To be filled with the Spirit means to be constantly controlled by the Spirit in our mind, emotions, and will by faith. So in my life, every moment, I have a challenge. I can go to find what the Spirit says is true about God and me and, and the situation in the Word, and I can step out in faith and obedience to obey Him and trust Him and believe that He's going to step up in power and presence to enable me to do so. That's the whole Christian life. Stepping out in faith and obedience, believing that He's going to step up within you and in the situation so that you will be carried through. I've lived that way for 30, 40 years. Nothing mystical about it. It's a constant faith stand. And he'll be good for it. He'll rise up within you. I think Jesus modeled this because he said, I always do what the Father tells me to do. Even in Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. So it's submitting to the authority of God. And then here's second and the last when we close. It's, it's immersing yourself in the truth of God. If being filled with the Holy Spirit means being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And being under the influence of the Holy Spirit means being under the truth of what he says. Just like you're under the influence of your parents, you're obeying the truth of what they say then what do you need to do? You need to abide in this wonderful book. You need to be involved in his truth. How do you get under the influence in a good way? By living in and by his word. It's real interesting. Ephesians 5.18, when you're filled with the spirit, verse 18, certain things will happen in your life. Verse 19, you'll start addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Worship will come alive for you. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Old seminary professor told me once, and I was a traveling speaker at times, and I preached in different churches. He says, you can take the temperature of a church after the first worship song. Just stand on the platform and take a look and see how many of the believers are singing. If very few are singing, 
A dead church. A carnal church. If many are singing, well, Ephesians 5.19, they're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What else is going to happen? You're going to be a thankful person. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything. You're going to trust the sovereignty of God and God's total control over your life and your world. And then you're going to submit to one another, verse 21, out of reverence to Christ. All your relationships are going to be relationships in which you want to love others in the name of Jesus. No matter what they're saying or doing, you're you're, you're committing yourself to show the love of God in all the relationships in the church. And then in verse 22, all the way through the end of that chapter, he talks about husbands and wives and parents and children and coworkers and everything else and everything that, that flows out of that. So worship... Faith and relationships all come out of the control of the Holy Spirit, which is obeying his word by faith and trusting him to step up with power in you when you do that. So you've got to get under the word. Now, I just went through Ephesians 5. Now, take that and put your thumb there and go to Colossians 3. I'll show you something that Bible teachers have seen for centuries. Same writer, Paul, different church, Colossae. And he shows that the same thing happens when you're filled with the word that happens when you're filled with the spirit. Colossians 3, and take a look at verse 16. And above all these put on love, pardon me, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then look at this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Does that look familiar? That's what happens when you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Does that look familiar? It's exactly what Ephesians 5, 19 and 20 say, happen when you're under the control of the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying that happens when you're under the control of the word of God. So what are we saying? How do you get under the control of the Holy Spirit? Are you ready for this? Come under the control of the word of God. Because they both speak the same language. That's the heart of the Spirit always is is for you to know the word of God and do the word of God by faith in his power. And when you do that, the same results happen. Verse 18 of Colossians 3, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, children, the same list of submission and loving relationships comes out of a word-dominated life. So a spirit-soaked life is the same thing as a scripture-soaked life. You might want to jot that one down. A spirit-soaked life is the same as a scripture-soaked life, provided you're submitting to both with a humble heart of wanting to say, yes, Lord, I want to be who you want me to be and do what you want me to do. That, in simple terms, beloved, is what a spirit-controlled life looks like. Now, some of you may be either disappointed or disagreeing, and that's okay, because it's the Lord's job to teach us. Some of you might be saying, so you're telling me there's no secret? I've been told there's a secret. No. I looked for one. I mean, there's no formula either. There's no book. No special church that I need to go to. There's not even anything I can send away for. I mean, it just... No, it's simpler and deeper than that. It's coming under the authority of his word, living with joy in his truth, 
and coming under the influence of what he says is true about your world and how he wants you to live for the glory of God. Stepping out into that by faith moment to moment and believing that he'll step up within you and in the situation to empower you to do so. That's Christianity. That's how Jesus lived. So how do you uh, respond to that? Can you do this? Yes, that's, you've been equipped spiritually to live this way. And many of, many of you are. Can we always grow in it? Absolutely. But remember, Paul talked to two groups of people in Corinth. He said there were fleshly Christians and spiritual Christians. And I will say that that implies that there's a decision involved. Once you come to Christ, soon you'll be confronted with the challenge of obeying Christ. And he's going to want to take you into deeper obedience. And you're going to face a set of decisions along the way. Being devoted to the Lordship of Christ goes against everything your old flesh ever wanted and everything the world out there says you ought to need. So you're going to be facing decisions about devoting yourself. And sometimes it'll come in seasons where the Lord says, I've got, I've got something for you that I, I want you to do for me. And I've had this experience in my life on a couple of, well, more than a couple Multiple occasions where the Lord was calling me to be more devoted, but I knew it would be a sacrifice and I knew there'd be suffering. And I balked and I pulled back and I started to say no for the will of God in my life in that area. And I resisted him. And God had to go to work on me. And I can tell you with joy that eventually... I humbled myself and I came under that point of calling in my life or that issue. And I began to say, Lord, I can't do it, but you can in me and through me. And I want to step into that by faith and let you carry me through. And he has been faithful every time. But there are seasons where it is a battle. Maybe you're in one right now. Let me encourage you. Go God's way. There was a, a famous, famous singer back in the 1800s. Her name was Frances Ridley Havergal. She had what they called a hundred-year voice. And that was an age where people uh, just adored opera and, 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 and you know, big, big-voiced singers and concert halls were all the thing. And, and her voice got discovered. And before she knew it, she was very young, late teens, early 20s, and she was being taken all over the world to fill these concert halls and with that 100-year voice, a voice that would come along once a century. But she had also come to Christ. And she had a love for sacred music and a love for the Lord, and, and she enjoyed ministering in churches when she could, but oh, the, the concert halls were calling. And she had a sense early in her Christian life that the Lord wanted her to give her voice over to him. But she resisted, as you can understandably un see it. And there came a point where she knew she wasn't in, in the will of God, but the concert halls kept calling, and she wondered what God would do. Well, remember I talked about chastening? He began to chasten her. He withdrew his hand of blessing and 
In fact, he put her into a time where she was confined through an illness to where she couldn't sing. And she was in a row house in England, staying there. And the house, I think, was owned by someone who was a devoted Christian. And this woman had Bible studies downstairs all the time, reaching people and leading people to Jesus. And Frances Ridley Havergal was staying upstairs. And so her life was a picture of that house. There she was, isolated from the call of God. And she'd listen to the Bible studies and it grated on her heart. And she knew that that was the work of God and she was resisting it, but she held on. But one night in 1856, the woman came up, I believe, and knocked on the door and said, the people in my Bible study are asking for you. They know that you know Jesus. None of them are saved. They wanted to meet you. And they have questions. For some reason, she left the top room and she went downstairs. And the Spirit of God was working through the Word of God. And she began to ask and to answer their basic questions about who Jesus is and what sin is and what salvation means. And before she knew it, all 10 people in that Bible study had either come to Jesus or returned to Jesus. And she was in a God moment where the Spirit of God was filling and controlling people and the truth of God was breaking on souls. And she knew what she was seeing and she knew what she was fleeing. And so she walked up into that room that night And she gave herself back to the Lord. And she said, I'll go wherever you want me to go and I'll sing for you. And then she began to write. Here are the words she wrote that night. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with power, filled with messages from Thee. Take my will and make it Thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne.